This is the second of a two-part interview with Dave Turney, who is a well-known and respected attorney in Phoenix. Sixty years ago, he was a student and a participant in some of the early civil rights activities in the South that are now a part of our history. Uh, We continue our interview, and perhaps most importantly, we conclude with Dave's take on the lessons of these activities for today. From KTAR News, this is The Think Tank, hosted by Dr. Mike O'Neill. We're back with attorney Dave Tierney, who was a participant in the South in the early 60s in some of the um, initial of, of the latest wave of, of the civil rights movement. Uh, if you haven't heard that broadcast, uh, we're on podcast now and you're presumably here by subscription. I w- if you haven't heard that, I'd suggest you go back and listen to that first, because we're going to pick up kind of in the middle of a story. And, and the last uh, episode sort of set the context for a lot of what we're going to talk about right today. I wanted to ask you if you could talk about some of the folks that you've met uh, during the course of your time down in the South in the early 1960s. January of 62, I met in that first visit that I made to uh, Mississippi, I met seven different people that were absolutely crucial in the mo- in the movement. And the first was Medgar Evers. You probably heard his name. He was assassinated. He was a veteran black guy who was for 12 years or so the NAACP guy for all Mississippi. The second guy was James Meredith. He was the first black student to go into Ole Miss in nearly 100 years. Um Bob Dylan wrote a great song about the night of rioting when he went into Ole Miss, but I met him quite a bit before he went in. Uh, The third person was Aaron Henry. He had a drugstore in Clarksdale, and he was later the head of the Freedom Democratic Party. Uh, Number four was Ross Barnett and his lieutenant governor. uh, Barnett was was governor of Arizona. Uh, of, 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 of Alabama. Uh, no, Mississippi. <laughs> right. <on. laughs> okay. <laughs> so anyway, Barnett was somebody we met down there. Uh, it was a violent uh, kind of uh, attack on Higgs uh, when we were on a church steps. And then Dewey Green, who was the second guy into Ole Miss, he followed James Meredith, who lasted a year with the basketball team bouncing a ball on the room above his in the dormitory 24 hours a day. So he had a hard time studying. He was ostracized and so forth. And uh, I guess I mentioned Higgs. And then the last person uh, is Cheney. Cheney was a 15, 16-year-old black kid, and I met him just briefly. But he later figured in the deaths of the three civil rights workers, Schwerner, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman. And that was in 64 in the summer. Those people all met uh, desperate, awful, terrible ends. We talked off... uh off tape here uh, about the 1964 convention, which was kind of an outgrowth of some of the activities that were going down there. Tell us about the Freedom Democratic Party and how they were treated in 1964 by the Democrats in their presidential convention. So skipping over the March on Washington, 250,000 people in August of 63, just after Medgar Evers had been assassinated and leaping into Bob Moses's Freedom Summer. Freedom Summer began when he, Bob Moses, uh, 
a kind of a northeastern black guy who was a head of SNCC, I think it was, either SNCC or Slick. Student Non-Violating Coordinated Committee, famously headed later on by Stokely Carmichael. Uh, SNCC instead of Slick. SNCC. Anyway, Bob decided that he was tired of his NAACP workers getting beat up in Mississippi, and so he was going to train 400 people at Oberlin College. Uh, and he was going to send them down in two flights of 200, and they would all be there at one time, eventually, 400 of them. They would teach in freedom schools, and they would teach how to get by that terrible um, <laughs> exam that you had to pass, the the thing that we had been printing the materials to help people pass the uh, the voter exam. He sent these folks down, and the very early part of it, in August of 64, June of 64, uh, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman were delivered from a sheriff's office into the hands of the Klan, who took them and murdered them and put them under an earthen dam and then used a bulldozer to put them 30, 40 feet underground and so forth. And Hubert Humphrey and... Uh, and Bobby Kennedy, who had survived his brother's death, and uh, Lyndon Johnson, they decided that they would turn Mississippi upside down to find out what was going on, what was happening, and they went to town. That made national press, and it went on all summer long when they were looking for the bodies. Summer of 64. Summer of 64. And as this was coming to the end of the summer, uh, although uh, Bob Moses had sent his 400 down there in order to actually teach people, they had been collecting photos and tapes and videos and uh, all proof of how massive the disenfranchisement of blacks in Mississippi were. So comes the end of the summer and uh, the Democratic National Convention is in the boardwalk in, Missis- in uh, New Jersey. And his boys, uh, Moses chose the best, the 44 people that he could take out of Mississippi. And he sent them to the convention and they challenged the seating of the white Mississippi delegation, saying that the delegation had been selected by a process which totally disenfranchised all blacks in Mississippi. And they had yards and yards of material and pictures and stories and so forth. And the Democratic National Committee decided that the Credentials Committee would spend three or four days on national television, three hours a day, hearing these people who would explain. And Aaron Henry and Fannie Lou Hamer got on the microphone and in front of television cameras and pictures and slides and stuff that were behind them. It was an incredible exposition of what was going wrong in Mississippi and how dangerous and how outrageous it was. That led to Hubert Humphrey and Johnson fearing the loss of the South because every time that the South was threatened in its way of life, it would strike out politically. And so... And context of this is that it was referred to as the solid South. <laughs> the, the, those were those were states in the, in the deep South that would vote Democrat no matter what. And it was a huge base of the Democratic Party without which it didn't think it could win national elections. Correct. In fact, Roosevelt had often said that he wouldn't approach the civil rights issue because he had to hold on to the South to do other things he was doing. 
Truman began to depart from that. There was a threat to have the Dixiecrats leave the uh, Democratic Party in 1948. Strom Thurmond led the Dixiecrat Party, carried four or five states, I think. Yes. So by, you know, the summer of 64 and then this terrible convention with the nation watching, I mean, Kennedy had recently been assassinated. People were in a state of, you know, uh, arousal. The civil rights movement was really gathering steam Clergy from all over the nation were running around and going south and uh, appearing and getting beaten up. And the the Pettit Bridge uh, fiasco with John Lewis, for example, among the several hundred that were beaten uh, within an inch of their lives, uh, he got a concussion and broken ribs in that. And Bull Connor in uh, Atlanta, in uh, Mobile, Montgomery, Montgomery, Alabama. Sheriff. The sheriff there who used fire hoses and water cannons and dogs. Some said he was the best friend the civil rights movement ever had because he made all of the outrage so graphic and hard to ignore. The press was on it like a a fly on grease. They they couldn't believe what he was doing. Nobody could. And he was resolute that he was going to do this. And again and again, 12-year-old students in ranks of three or 400 would approach the schoolhouse or whatever, and he'd set the dogs and his policemen and the water cannons on them. And it would make front-page news. And, of course, the students up north were just in a frenzy um, trying to find ways to, you know, affect what was going on down there. And that is what happened uh, as a result of the Freedom Summer and the Democratic Convention of 64. And interestingly, however, the the Democratic Party was so paranoid about losing the South that they did not seat the what they called the Mississippi Freedom Party. They seated the traditional Democrats. They gave the uh, Freedom Democratic Party a status as, I think, honored guest is what sticks in my mind. And basically... They, they were they were afraid that they were going to lose the votes of the South, which they thought they needed. Lyndon Johnson was a new president taking over after Kennedy. He was a Texan. He was not inclined to do anything that would alienate the South. Hubert Humphrey was heart in the right place, but desperate to become vice president and keep the party together for the next election. Mm-hmm. And these 44 people that uh, Bob Moses had brought from Mississippi, the black folks who testified and appeared and. They all went back to Mississippi after the convention to what must have been absolute hell. And the irony is the Democrats lost the South and basically won everything else. They carried about 45 or 46 states in 1964. And it was the start of the Republican domination of the South. Mm -hmm. There were some years in there where you had a lot of people who were – I think presidential vote went – First, and then you had a lot of uh, residual de- Democrat, kind of like you had in in Arizona. You had the the most conservative Democrats were the rural Democrats, the Bob Stumps and folks like that, who eventually became Republican. And you had Strom Thurmond striding the land for a total of about fifty years in Congress, being the voice, the phys- the visage of uh, the other side. Yeah, into his nineties. Yes, so, I mean he was still kind around. of a Carl Hayden type, you know, just a. A real presence, a, a long-running presence in Congress. So, so talk to us about wh- what happened to these folks. So, I'm sorry to say that uh, almost everybody met a terrible end. Medgar was murdered on his front doorstep by a gentleman named Byron de la Beckwith, and he was a middle-aged guy who had a hunting rifle, and he stood across the street and shot him in the back. 
It took another 30 years before on federal civil rights charges, Byron De La Beckwith was finally... Famously, white juries in the South didn't convict people who were... They, murdered they tried him two or three times in state courts uh, for different charges in Mississippi, and it didn't go anywhere. And uh, if we move on to James Meredith, uh, he went through a full year uh, in Ole Miss. Uh, Burke Marshall had to, had to call Kennedy and ask for National Guard to be nationalized, and Governor Ross Barnett was woodshedded by Bobby Kennedy and and President Kennedy, and there's a famous tape about them just ripping the hide off him and then nationalizing the, the guards. So and, that, and just to explain what that is, you have a National Guard that is under the command of the state governor, but uh, the uh, president of the United States may nationalize the guard, and the chain of command by, then bypasses the governor and goes straight up to the president. And he can, the president can at any time nationalize the guard, as Eisenhower did in 57 in Little Rock. To Significant which, in that when they're in Mississippi or Alabama, oh. the guard that's there are Alabamans and Mississippians, not an invading army. Absolutely. Uh, this is this is a situation where you could have kind of the Irish Kura mutiny of the guard, but it didn't happen. Guard did what they were ordered but to do. But I remember like in one instance, I think it was in the instance of Wallace, where the commanding general says to Wallace something like, uh, Governor, I'm sorry I have to do this, but. <laughs> <laughs> so the third person that met the bad end is Aaron Henry. Um it's a complicated story, but Aaron Henry owned a prosperous uh, black uh, pharmacy in Clarksdale, and he was the head of the Freedom Democratic Party. And when he returned, uh, all kinds of dreadful economic things were foisted on him. Uh, and by the way, I should mention that uh, Robert L.T. Smith, in whose house I had stayed, um, his insurance was canceled on each of his three grocery stores and then on his house, and then one by one they burned down each of his grocery stores and then his house. And they, the fourth person was Governor Ross Barnett, who after his woodshedding uh, by uh, Kennedy, some three or four later, he and his lieutenant governor were found to have conspired with some bank robbers that had been caught by the state police. And the governor and his lieutenant governor had tried to get them uh, to give the loot to the two officials, Barnett and his lieutenant governor, and then they would let the the bank robbers go, and this all came out. So Barnett met an awful uh, result in the political service. In In prison? I don't don't think he ever got prison. I think it was just a scandal. End of career. Right. And then uh, I mentioned Bill Bill Higgs, which there's a long, dreadful story about Higgs, but Basically, he was chased out of uh, Mississippi, threatened with trumped-up charges, uh, came to my home in Cambridge as a fugitive from those charges. I was uh, you know, studying to be a lawyer and was going to have to go before a character and fitness committee. And here's this good friend of mine who's fleeing from charges, in, uh, and I had to put him up in my house because that was the kind of relationship we had. With a couple of the Harvard students, I went to Volpe's office. He was the governor of Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and I got Volpe to agree. Volpe's head of staff to agree they would not extradite Higgs back to these trumped-up charges in Mississippi. But Higgs then went down to D.C. to work, and he eventually just disappeared. I like to think that he's living under an assumed name somewhere in Utah because those charges were never done away with. And in the Harvard uh, uh, student uh, books, he's listed his address unknown. 
I guess the last guy um, is Dewey Green, uh, who went to school after Meredith and uh, had a little bit easier time. And then finally, Cheney, whom I mentioned, uh, the black kid that I met. Cheney was the third person in the Schwerner, Goodman, Cheney group that was in, in 1964, June, the first folks in with the uh, Moses group of 400. And they were the three civil rights workers that were taken out by the sheriff, given into the hands of the Klan and, and buried under an earthen dam in Philadelphia, Mississippi, some 30 feet below the top of the dam. And um, that there's a, a wonderful movie about that. It's called Mississippi Burning. And uh, Gene Hackman's the star of that movie. And it is very true to life in terms of the terror and the methods. Well, part, of the, part of the terror is you... You know, I think our most of our instincts are you're in some kind of threat. You go to the cops, but sometimes the cops and the Klan are the same people. <laughs> in that case, Sheriff Rainey has uh, – he, he he sat at his desk and told the reporters, those boys, they're probably up in New Jersey. They're probably sitting in an apartment, an apartment somewhere just laughing at all the commotion that uh, Hubert Humphrey and Johnson are creating down here. They had hundreds of CBs searching the swamps looking for the bodies or the car of the civil rights workers. It was national news. This is, you know, before the 64 convention. And it was national news. I mean, just front page every day. Let's talk about some lessons of, of, of movements and how movements are successful. Your thoughts on this? So – I ended up going off into law school and I was very busy with what I was doing. I was working while I was going to Harvard Law School, working nights, which was not a good way to go to law school. Anyway, I was kind of drifting away from the movement. But what was happening is I would go to core meetings in Boston at these fine old churches. Congress of Racial Equality. Correct. Another civil rights group. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'd go to these meetings of core and um, they became progressively more interested in the violent approach to the movement. And guys like Malcolm X in New York, later assassinated in 1965, um, the the violent people who wanted to take the movement into nonviolent was no longer good, let's go and and break bottles and throw them through windows and that kind of stuff. Those guys began to surge and be more visible. And as they began to become the recognized faces of the movement, you began to lose the clergy who had been the backstay, uh, the white clergy of the Northeast had been tremendously in support of the movement, and they began to lose interest in places where you'd go to a demonstration and it would turn violent. And it would inextricably turn violent because always some of this splinter movement would be out in the forefront and they would be throwing rocks if you've or got, bottles. If you've got a few hundred people and you've got a dozen throwing rocks, you have a violent demonstration. And frankly, that syndrome is what seems to attack and maybe defeat or diffuse movements in every instance. And so what happens is the folks who are nonviolent and interested in the principle and interested in incremental gains and wanting to make things happen, they get swamped by the people who are um, expressing themselves by violence. And this happens, I think, in many different movements. I've seen it happen, I think, in the abortion movement, which is going on right now. I've seen it happen in the in the opposition to the Vietnam War, which mm-hmm. was the next thing that happened after the civil rights movement. And with the death of Martin Luther King, with the death of Bobby Kennedy, the steam seemed to go out of the center of the movement 
And then the Vietnam War opposition absolutely sucked the life out of the movement. So we got the 64 and the 65 Civil Rights Act, and then the opposition to the Vietnam War just sort of blotted up all Mm -hmm. the power and interest of the students and any liberal thinking person in the United States, I think. And that kind of pushed the uh, civil rights movement off to the side. The movement has continued. So I'd, I'd know before before King got shot, he was trying to bridge the two movements. He was. Yeah, he made one or two speeches about the relationship between civil rights and the draft and who was fighting in Vietnam and what were we fighting for and what was the sense of this. And he was told, stay, out, stay, stay in your lane. He was indeed. Uh, and Hoover was behind the scene, building a lot of wires about King and trying to besmirch him and mm-hmm. knock him out. But the bottom line is when you lose um, some people who are historical figures and very charismatic, uh, sound leaders in a movement and the extremists are out front throwing the rocks, it tends to splinter the movement and kind of derail it. And it seems to be a syndrome that happens in almost every movement I've seen of social significance in our country. It seems to me that in order for that to happen, the extremists don't have to be large in number (laughs) because the other side will immediately seize upon that and say, see, these folks are violent. I'm against violence. Even even though they may be the perpetrators of uh, kind of systemic uh, state violence. Certainly happened in the South. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember the rhetoric used by the segregationists in Alabama and Georgia. And law and order. <laughs> These people are attacking law and order. They can't abide by the laws. They're not getting permits. They're being rowdy or worse than rowdy, uh, you know, attacking uh, windows and doors of uh, establishments in the course of demonstrations. And it doesn't take a lot of that before the people who are kind of well-meaning but not so passionate about the movement start to desert or just not show up. Or passionate but not willing to cross lines of, of, of illegality or violence. So I think we're seeing that syndrome play out even today in one or two movements that we've got visible in the United States strike today. Is there a fix to that? That famous line, will the center hold? Uh, you need your charismatics figures. They're, they're national treasures. And, um, you know, a good spokesman and five or six um, close confidants and people who work seamlessly and endlessly with uh, a charismatic leader who keeps the movement together, focused and directed, that is essential. And if you lose those people, whether to assassination or illness or whatever, then it makes it very hard for the movement to continue without splintering. And once it splinters, it seems to lose steam. Uh, It's it just shocking sometimes to see how fast that can occur. Hard to see how you stop that in cases where the outrages and, and the basically outrageous things that people are being exposed to. Anger is a is a very reasonable reaction to that. And anger can produce overreaction. I'll put in a plug for my profession. All during the late 60s and onward in the South, voices of calm and reason, voices that were being listened to, were members of the bar who were putting their practices on the line to take on pro bono civil rights cases. And they flooded the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. 
And that was one of the weather vanes, one of the rudders, one of the channels by which the movement kept itself together because the lawyers were speaking calm, speaking from facts, speaking from using the law and so forth. And the movement saw progress. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, Judge Tuttle, were giants in making sure that things went right. And that helped keep the movement together. Even when Kennedy and and Martin Luther King disappeared, the lawyers for quite some time were able to kind of keep the focus in the direction of the the movement uh, in the right place. Vote for the law. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would wish that would happen. Thank you very much, David Tierney. Uh, Object lesson for our times as well. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Mike. 